Hello, good people. This is Sister Julia Walsh, and you're listening to Messy Jesus Business. Welcome to The Mess. I'm here with Ellie Hidalgo, who is co-director of Discerning Deacons, a project that engages Catholics in the active discernment of our church about women and the diaconate. Ellie brings 12 years of parish ministry experience at Dolores Mission Church in East Los Angeles, and she graduated with a master's in pastoral theology from Loyola Marymount University and received a BA from the University of Pennsylvania. In 2023, earlier this year, Ellie received the Robert M. Holstein Faith Doing Justice Award from the Ignatian Solidarity Network and the St. John the 23rd Award for keeping alive the vision of Vatican II from the Association of U.S. Catholic Priests. Welcome, Ellie. Thank you, Julie. I'm just delighted to be here. When I was offered the invitation to come speak on Messy Jesus Business, I thought, oh, this is right up my alley. <laughs> Messy Jesus Business. Yes. Yeah. I'm so grateful uh, for this conversation. I've been following you and your work and quite inspired and I would say influenced by your leadership. And I would love to hear, how did you discover your vocation to ministry and, and really become the leader that you are in the Catholic Church? I come from a large Cuban, Cuban American family. My parents are from Cuba. They're immigrants. And I discovered uh, that, you know, we can't, we were part of a vibrant Catholic family. Most of us went to Catholic schools. And when we were, I was a teenager, we moved to Miami. And that was kind of a culture shock for, for our family to be in the middle of the Cuban community. Mm. And at the same time, my parents were, you know, raising U.S. born children and trying to sort all this out. But at the time, there was uh, a ministry specifically for Cuban families called Encuentro Familiares. And it actually still goes on today. And it was being run by a Jesuit priest, Father Florentino Ascoitia. And he was bringing together families because of, you know, the struggles with language, with culture, with different ideas about what it means to be Catholic and practicing your faith. And he would create these family retreats with a lot of support from lay people and especially lay parents and the youth. And they would be these week and long retreats in which we would be learning how to communicate better as a teenager, how to communicate better with our parents and then how to communicate better with us. And I remember my big insight there was like, oh, wow, the Catholic church is relevant. I remember that mm. being the word that kind of sparked into my imagination like, like this church actually cares about the conversations happening in my family's kitchen mm. and how well we're communicating as a family or not. And that helped me to see that like, oh, wow, the Catholic church is more than just us going to mass on Sundays. It's about supporting families. It's about supporting immigrant families. It's about being in the mass. Because mm. families are messy and we would hear all kinds of stories mm. of the messiness that families were going through. I kept going to other retreats to give charlas, which are called like talks. Mm. And that was in a way um, my initial spark. And I ended up becoming active in the Newman Center in my college. But then like many young adults, there was this period of time where I was kind of inactive post-college. And after a number of years, I 
ended up living in Los Angeles and I was freelancing. I was doing freelance writing and I was trying to sort out, okay, what is my purpose? What am I being called to do? And I have this uh, vision of God as sometimes being a real me in kind of God, because I happened to look at the newspaper, the LA Times, and there was a help wanted, like a job posting for a writer for the Catholic newspaper. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, a writer for the Catholic newspaper. That would never have crossed my mind, but this is kind of interesting. Mm. And my heart sort of started thumping. And I decided to apply. I got the interview. I decided, well, let me see if I like the editor. I liked the editor. And then he said to me, you know, I'm really sorry, but this is basically there's a writer going on leave, medical leave. She was having a baby and she wanted to take six months. And I thought to myself, oh, this is perfect. I will work for the church for six months and then I will have done my, you know, giving back. Uh, And so anyway, Julia, long story short, I am in the 25th year of my (laughs) six month assignment. Wow. So yeah, God was kind of a flirt, reeled you in a little, a little tease. Cause like, Oh, writing a job. Right. And then things just unfolded. So what, what happened that got you convinced that this was the way you were supposed to live your life and the thing you were supposed to give your life over to? So I ended up with such fun beats on this, on this, uh, on this you know, writing job. I was covering uh, I was covering immigration reform, you know, that we're talking now like the late 1990s, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. That was a very um, active issue. I was covering the Office of Detention Ministry, mm-hmm. which became the Office of Restorative Justice. So I was writing about that change, you know, to be, become more focused on restorative justice and what does that mean? I was writing stories about get on the bus, these efforts to take children to prisons to visit their moms or their dads. Mm. I was writing about Homeboy Industries, Mm. which is the largest gang intervention and rehabilitation program. So there was so many good things happening in Los Angeles, just very vibrant. Again, where the church was trying to respond to very challenging issues in the community, like gang violence or incarceration or immigration and trying to respond, like trying to bring a light, the light of Christ to these, to these issues. And so I just realized, oh my gosh, I love this work. And I just love this vision of Catholicism that is in the mess, Mm. you know, that is in the mess and is praying with people and accompanying people, walking with people and figuring out what is ours to do. You know, how do we respond to these situations that people are going through? And then I, um, through Homeboy Industries and also through the priest who was the pastor at Dolores Mission, I got connected with Dolores Mission. And I just found a community of belonging where I really felt like el reino de Dios, which is an idea I had grown up with, right? That we're here to help establish the kingdom of God on earth. El reino de Dios was really coming alive. And lay people were extremely active, especially the women, the grandmothers and the mothers of the community who were mostly themselves immigrants from Mexico and El Salvador and other Central American countries. And this community was like my my pearl of great price. Mm. You know, oh, my gosh, 
There was ministry happening with the homeless, with undocumented families, with children, with youth, with folks recovering from addiction and gang violence and survivors of violence. And I just loved the work that was happening there that I, like I said, the Pearl of Great Price, I moved into the neighborhood. I was like, I got to live in this neighborhood. Four homes down from the church, the Jesuits is the Jesuit church. They were like, oh, you moved into the neighborhood? Do you want to do some more work with us? And, um, <laughs> <laughs> They're like, <laughs> look at me, like, I mean yes. it. I'm serious about this work. <laughs> and I was getting, I was studying for my master's at um, mm. LMU. And so then I started working as I actually discerned, okay, you know, that my time for writing full time is completed. And now I'm I'm feeling really called to just walk with this community, especially with the mothers mm. of Dolores Mission, who themselves, like my mother, were trying to raise children in the US and figure out all kinds of culture gaps. And and I had a lot of training even from my earlier years about, oh, I have some ideas about how you could improve the communication with your kids, you know? And so uh, started leading support groups and things like that. And, and then eventually became pastoral associate uh, mm. at the parish. And I was there for 12 years and I definitely got the ministry bug and felt just very called to walk with the community and very grateful for mm. the opportunity. Mm. I hear so much about that, that earlier word of relevance as you got deeper into what the church is and what the mission of the church is, which is, you know, to build up the reign of God, you encountered the relevance of the gospel again and again, the relevance of Jesus Christ, the relevance of the mission. Yeah. That phrase reign of God or kingdom of God is a phrase that you and I who, you know, have studied theology, like we can throw that around without, and we know what we mean, but maybe it would be helpful to some of our listeners if we broke open that phrase a little bit. What does kingdom of God mean to you? I think the first person I heard speaking about that was actually my grandfather, Manuel Suarez. And he was passionate about el reino de Dios and, and painted this image, you know, of this is a place where all children have enough food and their parents have jobs with, you know, um, incomes with dignity and their safety uh, and people can thrive, you know, just this idea that that of a world where everyone has the opportunity to thrive and where their talents and their gifts are recognized. But then the next point was sort of like, and this isn't just going to happen by itself, like, <laughs> you know, like we are the hands and feet of God in the world. Like this happens as we respond to God's call in our hearts and we figured out discern what's ours to do. And so this idea that being Catholic is not a passive thing. You're not going to church and just sort of receiving uh, a liturgy. You're there to pray and keep always sort of this, you know, and again, I was raised um, around a lot of uh, Jesuit ministries this idea of just ongoing discernment, you know, like what is, what are you being called to do? What's going to be your part? What's going to be your contribution? Um, and sometimes I have this image, Julia, of like the body of Christ being like a mosaic mm. tiles, uh, just a beautiful mosaic of tiles. And each of us is a tile, you know, in this body of Christ. And so, okay, what's my piece? What's, what's my tile? What's the piece that I, that I'm being called to do? Mm. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, <laughs> right? We all have a part and it, the whole can't exist without each of us being active and showing up, showing up and being active, participating wholeheartedly. Yeah. So your journey continued and somehow you switched from being a parish minister in this very lively parish, which I had the joy of visiting and meeting Father Justin earlier this year. Yes. Now you work for Discerning Deacons, which is a newer organization and super relevant, (laughs) back to the word of relevancy, at this time in our church. Could you uh, explain for us, how did you become so passionate about opening the diaconate to women? And again, you know, this is sort of like where just God begins to plant seeds Mm. in my heart through experiences because I'm here at Dolores Mission and, you know, I'm very focused outwardly on my ministry, on my different ministries. And we were working in all different kinds of things. And for example, one of the things we did to help undocumented folks is we partnered with the Loyola Immigrant Justice Clinic. And we were inviting folks to come in and find out might there be a way to help regularize your immigration situation? Because it turns out there are lots of people who could get some relief, but they're poor and they don't have access to a lawyer. So like we were making that connection and and helping up to a thousand people a year. It was really amazing. But anyway, in the midst of all this, I'm also being asked, would I celebrate a liturgy of the word every Thursday, Mm -hmm. liturgy of the word with communion every Thursday, so the priest could have a day off? And so I was like, okay, this is kind of new. I didn't expect to be doing this, but I said yes. And one day this couple came in with their daughter. I did the liturgy uh, of the word. And afterwards they came up to me and they said, today is our daughter's quinceanera. So she was turning 15 on that day. And we wanted to see if the priest could bless her. This was a poor family. They couldn't afford a party. They couldn't afford a dress. They had decided the most important thing was coming to mass, Mm. which was really just beautiful and extraordinary. And there was no priest. He was off on his day off and I knew that he wasn't in the neighborhood. So I had to look at them and just say, I'm so sorry. There's no priest here. And they just were like, but it's her quinceanera. She needs a blessing. I was like, you're right. But I really, there is, you know, there is no one here today. And can you come tomorrow? And they looked so disappointed. And I felt disappointed. In that moment, we were just kind of stuck that we Mm. were just focused on we need, you know, uh, a priest to be here. And I ended up going home and I just sort of burst into tears. Like, what am I doing? You know, what exactly is God's call to me? I talked to a friend, cried some more, got a good night's sleep. And the next morning, Julia, I wake up. And my thought was, why didn't I bless her? Mm. Why didn't I just gather this little family and walk over to the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe and just pray together and just rain blessings upon this young woman and have each of us say something about her? And suddenly it was like my imagination was sparked in a way that hadn't been. And so it actually changed the way I did the liturgies of the word. I would get there early. I learned, especially in the Latino community, people are coming to a Thursday liturgy that they're not usually there if there's a reason. 
it's the anniversary of grandma's death. It's, you know, the anniversary of a marriage, a new baby has been born there. So I would get there early and I'd ask people, oh, why'd you come to mass? And I'd find out, okay, we're going to bless you. So I became like the woman who loved to do blessings because after the liturgy, we'd bring people up. And if it was, you know, grandma's birthday, we would all bless grandma and have people say things about her. And anyway, I began to realize like, oh, I, I do have a role. You know, I have a, a, a special ministerial role that I can offer in this community and began to just think about women's roles in the church, yeah. you know, uh, for, for liturgy, for the word, for service, and began to become more interested in like the history of women's roles in the church and what might be God be calling us to now. And I'll just tell you one more story. It's interesting to me that Pentecost centers around language. And I often find that sometimes opportunities come to women because of language issues. So at a certain point at Dolores Mission, another priest came in who barely spoke Spanish. Mm. And five out of our six masses were in Spanish on the weekend. And so at one point, I was asked by the Jesuits if I could offer a reflection during some of his liturgies. And the reason was because the people of God need to be nurtured. Mm. And this is actually more central than the fact that I'm female and maybe shouldn't be speaking. But here they were like, no, we need you to speak. You're trained, you're formed, you have the language capacity. Mm-hmm. It's a reflection, not a homily, but we are going to open up this space so that you can do this and give this priest more time to learn Spanish. And so I said, yes, I was, again, being called forth to do this in part because of the need Yeah. and finding that as I did start to do that, especially younger women really appreciated getting Mm -hmm. to hear the gospel being broken open by another woman and just felt like, okay, you're offering a unique perspective that we don't always get to hear. So I was at Dolores Mission about 12 years and suddenly the pandemic happened. Mm. And my brother, Patrick Hidalgo, died very suddenly at the beginning of the of the mm. pandemic. And he had been living in, in Miami and managing the care of our elderly widower father. And so right away, I just knew it's my time now to go to Miami and help my family during a time of great grief after yeah. I had helped so many other families. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did that. I moved to Miami and in the process of, of discerning, what am I going to do next? Yeah. Uh, you know, I was invited to participate in, um, a six week zoom workshop. We were all looking for zoom mm, opportunities. Right, right. And this was a six week workshop for women to reflect on our ministry and our experience of ministry. And Casey Stanton had invited me to participate And there was a lot of excitement happening because the Amazon Synod had taken place in 19, in 2019. Right. And the bishops of the Amazon had said, Pope Francis, can we talk to you more about our women in ministry and talk to you about the possibility of recognizing them as deacons, Mm. admitting them to the diaconate or... This was like really exciting to us, like, wow, to have a group of bishops asking for this, like what's going on in the Amazon? Right. 
And so Casey and I and uh, and a number of other people that were helping us with the effort started to discern, is this the moment? Is this the moment to create a concrete project mm. that will actually help to grow this conversation? We launched Discerning Deacons yeah. in April of 2021. Yeah. And in May, Julia, mm. Pope Francis starts talking about the Global Synod. Mm-hmm. Wow. And wow. It, it was remarkable. It totally felt like Holy Spirit because mm-hmm. suddenly here was, he was announcing the largest listening and consultation process that's ever been attempted to listen to the people of God all around the world, uh, especially those on the peripheries and not just Catholics, but also interreligious outreach, ecumenical outreach and uh, folks on the margins, and just to find out, you know, what do people love about the Catholic Church? What are their laments? Mm. What are their hopes and dreams for how we're being called to walk together in the third millennium? And and we were just like, this is just the perfect opportunity for us to be the deacons mm-hmm. that are needed at this time mm-hmm. to help animate these listening sessions. I mean, if you think about the support groups and the listening that happens in parishes, the bereavement groups, all different kinds of groups that happen in parishes, they're mostly led by women. The women have a lot of experience uh, gathering people together and trying to form safe spaces for listening. And here, this gifts and experience is being called forth. And we get to also raise issues that maybe sometimes people have been afraid to raise. Like sometimes it can feel scary to talk about women's roles in the church. Well, we've been told in the past not to, right? So that creates the fear, right? So, you know... One of the words that that we're also throwing around in this conversation is is discerning. Discerning Deacons is the name of your organization. And I am the vocation minister for my community. My business card says Minister of Discerners. And I work in the the FSPA discernment office. However, discernment, again, is one of those words that those of us that are deep in the, the trenches of the church life can use without defining for those who are sort of maybe observing <laughs> the, the church without understanding it all. So from your point of view, how do you define discerning and what does it mean to be discerning deacons? Why is that the name of the organization that you co-direct now? So we settled on this name, you know, came on this name, Discerning Deacons, because this is the question that's on the table, Mm. right? In 2016, actually before the Amazon Synod, the superiors of women religious, they were the first actually to ask Pope Francis, could we talk to you about the diaconate? Because we would like to do a little more service if, you know, if we could. And Pope Francis then opened up this commission to study women and the diaconate. And then later there was another commission created. And then now we're in the global synod. So the church is in a time of discernment. And so the way I would define it is like, okay, we are praying about a question. Mm. We are praying about a question. We are listening to the needs on the ground. You know, is there a need for women 
to be able to do a little more service. And when we talk about the diaconate, we're talking about things like liturgies of the word, being able to preach, being able to baptize, celebrate weddings, uh, do funeral services, and especially direct the charitable and service activities of a church. You know, is this something that could be of help to, to pastors, especially now so many pastors are starting to have to pastor one, two, three, four parishes, you know, could they be helped by women deacons that could do a little more to sustain ministry uh, in these different parishes? And could the people of God themselves also benefit? So we're in this time of prayer, listening to what the needs are, listening also to women uh, in ministry talk about their call, like are women experiencing the call to the diaconate? Mm -hmm. And if so, how is this being experienced? And are they finding places either with spiritual directors or to even have the opportunity to sort of pray about it? Like, is, is God calling me this? Would this be something that I would discern if I could Yeah, with my archdiocese, with my bishop? And so this is a question that the church is a live question and that Pope Francis is uh, inviting us that this not just be a discernment that happens at the Vatican, mm. but that through the synod process, the people of God, let's find out if the people of God are ready for this, if pastors would receive women deacons, if bishops are ready to, to order the ministry of women in, in a more intentional way. And so part of what we have realized we needed to do is that we need to help people understand a little bit more mm even Catholic history, because sometimes it's hard to imagine something in the present if you don't fully know even your history. Mm-hmm. And and so when, when I say to people, well, you know, there were women deacons, mm-hmm. like we had this in our early history, that like suddenly opens up the imagination for people. Like, really? You know, like, tell me more. Mm. So it's like, well, let's talk about St. Phoebe. Yeah. She's the one, she's the woman deacon that's most well known, even though she's not very well known, but we're trying to help. I mean, I know about her. (laughs) She's the one whose name is in the Bible. Yeah, yeah, right. Read the Bible, people. (laughs) Check out St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 16, verse one through two. It It is just this beautiful affirmation of a woman in ministry by none other than St. Paul. You know, it's just really remarkable what he says about her, that she has been a benefactor to him and to many. Mm. That he recognizes her as a leader of the church in Sencria, which is in Greece, near Corinth. And he has spent a bunch of time in Corinth, so he knows St. Phoebe. Mm. He makes the decision to entrust his letter to the Romans to her And she makes the journey from Sancria, Greece to Rome, which is about 600 miles. She meets with the Roman community to deliver this letter from St. Paul. I mean, it's just this beautiful image of collaborative ministry, Mm. St. Paul and St. Phoebe, whom he names Mm. as diaconos. Mm. He recognizes her diaconal ministry. Tell me about how to celebrate St. Phoebe Day. So her feast day was September 3rd, 
But parishes around the country and places around the world are celebrating St. Phoebe all month of September. Mm. So there's about 150 parishes and schools and retreat centers and different institutions that are celebrating St. Phoebe throughout the month. And in some places, people are inviting a, a woman to give a reflection or a testimony either before mass starts or after communion or wherever they are allowed to do so. Uh, people are downloading prayer cards from our website mm. and printing beautiful prayer cards to, to St. Phoebe. Some folks are using the opportunity in a mass to have the women in ministry stand up and be uh, applauded or recognized or blessed in some way. Like it's a moment to just celebrate the gifts of women in ministry. Some folks are offering like an educational forum. Uh, who was St. Phoebe and why does she matter? Mm. And then using this opportunity to actually talk about the global synod on communion participation and mission and the questions that are happening right now where we are reimagining women's participation. And actually mm. there's a worksheet in this global synod that talks specifically about women's roles in the church. So offering opportunities for people to read that, yeah. reflect on it, think about it, pray about it, you know, offer their comments. And so that, that's another way to celebrate St. Phoebe. I love it. We'll put the website and the information in our show notes. So the listeners can check out Discerning Deacons. DiscerningDeacons.org. And, the, and you'll see right there at the top, St. Phoebe Day 2023, oh. celebrate, <laughs> get the toolkit, resources and downloads. There you go. <laughs> and, if, and if you, Julia, or any people, uh, any other folks have other ideas of how to celebrate St. Phoebe Day, we are all ears. Okay, <laughs> sounds good. So you mentioned the Synod a few times, and I'd love for, with the time we have remaining, to explore that a little bit. In your words, what does the common Christian need to understand about the upcoming synod in Rome? And of course, I would love to hear about what the process has been like for you and your trip to the Amazon. My goodness, what an adventure. So <laughs> please just tell us all about the synod, my friend. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, I'm so excited to talk about the synod. <laughs> yeah, it, it, because it is an exciting time to be Catholic. Yeah. And it is, again, you know, using that word relevant, it's like, oh my gosh, this is the church's time to really listen mm -hmm. to people's experiences and to pray and discern, like, how is God calling us to walk together and be church in the third millennium? Mm. Pope Francis says that, third millennium. <laughs> and it's exciting, right? We're just 23 years into this third millennium. Mm. What does God have in mind for us for how we're called to be a people who listen, who dialogue respectfully, who discern the movement of the Holy Spirit in our times? And ultimately, after all this, we make decisions in the light of Christ about how we're being called to walk together for the good of humanity and for the good of our common home. Yeah. And to me, one of the things I love about it is I feel like the Synod is like an antidote to all of the polarization that we're experiencing mm. in, in our communities, in our families, even in our country, in the world. It's like, oh, here is something that's breaking in, mm. that's saying there is a way to get back to listening to one another. Austin Ivory, who's the Pope's biographer, 
I was at a conference in which he said that, you know, Pope Francis is like, is like a master spiritual director. It's, it's almost as though he's like trying to direct the world and trying to teach us all how to grow our capacities to listen and to understand the power that listening has and what it does to unleash people's gifts for ministry, for greater participation in their churches. It unleashes people's hope. Yeah. It, uh, it helps to stitch relationships back together. It helps us to not be afraid of entering into the messiness. Mm-hmm. of people's lives, families' lives, even our communities, but to say, okay, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Christian, and I can bring some helpful tools and, and capacities here, spiritual capacities, to help create safe spaces. Mm. And the other thing about synodality is not everyone has to agree. Mm. You know, it doesn't mean, okay, we're all going to walk out of here agreeing. What it does ask of people is a willingness to listen and mm. to engage. Yeah. I just want to share how I've been thinking about, a lot about listening lately in light of the ministries that I do as well. And I keep coming back to something that I became convinced of a few years ago, that when we listen, it's important for us to do it from a framework of compassionate curiosity instead of a place of judgment, right? And so if we're really caring, then we're going to be open and responsive to the other. Their story, their narrative is going to be center stage for us. And it's not going to be about our own agenda, our own ideas, or, oh, that reminds me of this and this time. And da, da, da. That's a countercultural way to listen and engage because it's not how we're taught to listen in school, which is about let me take down the information so I can remember it, or let me take down the information so I can debate it, right? True listening, listening that is rooted in the spirit is humble and open to conversion and transformation. So, yeah, I agree that there's this great power in listening. I I love that description of Pope Francis as being a master spiritual director, a real listener to the church and to the people of God. And ultimately, he's modeling for us, I believe, surrendering his own will and his own ideas about what the church is and what it's supposed to become. And he's showing us how we can all be more attentive to the greater good, to the power of God, and not to the traditions or uh, histories that we cling to because they're more comfortable for us or our own agendas, ideas. I think I was informed by the work of Margaret Wheatley, and I think that's what convinced me of the, the necessity of being a compassionate and curious listener so that I'm putting my own agendas and ideas to the side and staying open and receptive. I have found that it's more fun for me to interview folks like you and let you say whatever you want to say than it is for me to be given a microphone. (laughs) Oh, that's, that's, yeah. It's fun to hear you talk about this, Julia, that, you know, the compassionate listening, the non-judgmental listening. I often hear, um, Folks say, especially in the synod listening process, listening to learn. Yeah. You know, what could I learn by walking in somebody else's shoes Mm. for the next half hour? Yeah. And just, yes, like you said, it's not about listening to then debate, not about listening to refute. It's like, what would it look like for me to just listen to learn? Like Mm -hmm. everybody's got a story. Everybody is walking in a unique set of shoes. 
You know, there are many families, divorced and remarried families or have or have been asking for the chance to tell their stories, LGBTQ folks and their families, a lot of people living in violence or in wars, poor folks, you know, homeless folks, like there's so much that we can be learning just by listening to folks on the margins in particular. And because they are on the prophetic edge, they have a particular view on how the structures we have in place, both in the society or in the church, are not working or, you know, may not really be allowing people to thrive as fully as they could. And so as we listen to learn, we can begin to to think about uh, and have sparked that imagination mm. for, okay, how is the church calling us to respond? And how do we include everybody? Because at the end of the day, the people who are living through things often have the best picture of here's, you know, uh, for example, somebody who's disabled, here's how my church could welcome and include me better. Yeah. Right. And wouldn't we want to hear their ideas? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't we want to know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Julia, you did mention my journey to the Amazon. Do you want me to say something about that? Yes, please. Let's talk about Amazon. So I've gone twice. Wow, twice. Once to the Bolivia hmm. last summer, and then this summer to Brazil. One of the things that I learned, talk about listening to learn, I went to the Archdiocese of Porto Velho in Brazil, and that archdiocese is about the size of Indiana. Mm. Our state of Indiana has 735 priests as of 2021. Brazil has 32. This this that archdiocese. One, that one archdiocese, wow. That's the size of Indiana, has 32 priests. And so that bishop relies very, very much on lay women, lay men on women religious in particular who have a call to go to places, remote places, mm. and to be in the peripheries. And so I spent uh, a couple of days with Sister Laura Vicuña Pereira Manso, an indigenous woman who's part of the Caridi people, but who has been accompanying the Caripuna people mm. for a number of years. She has been helping indigenous folks to help build their capacities to use the court system to advocate for their human rights and their land rights. Because mm. many of these indigenous communities are the ones who are most committed to protecting the rainforest. Mm. The Amazon rainforest is the largest rainforest in the world. We all depend on a healthy Amazon rainforest for water, for good quality air. You know, the indigenous folks who need our support a lot as Catholics. And so there are women on the ground, women religious in particular, who are there just helping to preserve the Amazon and the rights of indigenous peoples. And so I have been learning a lot, just how do we build alliances mm. you know, with the Amazon and with the people of Latin America to learn how we can care for our common home and how they need us to be good allies. I also visited Bolivia and accompanied Sister Stevia Mies, who at the time was responsible for 140 small river communities. Mm. And she would literally go by boat with two lay people and just visit one community after the other. She would lead liturgies of the word, do baptisms, work with the catechists, do formation of the catechists. Mm. These communities, they're faith was being sustained. Mm. 
And she was essentially functioning as a de facto deacon. I met her bishop, very supportive of her work. And one of the bishops saying, you know, if I could ordain her a deacon tomorrow, that he would. And yet she had a canonical exception to be able to do all the things that a deacon mm. does. But again, it's like if the canonical exception becomes just how you're sustaining ministry, yeah. you know, then maybe we need to actually look at that structure and say, maybe it's time to, to recognize women as deacons. They're essentially doing the work and they could benefit from the sacramental grace yeah. as they do this hard job. She and I were crossing an Amazon river and this young boat worker comes up to her. We were in a boat and he comes up to her and he says, I remember you, you baptized my son. Mm. And it was just the most beautiful moment because it was such an ordinary moment for him. It was absolutely ordinary that it was this religious sister who baptized his son. His son was now eight years old. We were catching up on how he was doing and how the family was doing. She had baptized other members of the family. Mm. And again, it's like, here we are at the prophetic edge. And sometimes it is at the prophetic edge where you can see the Holy Spirit breaking through and allowing a new thing to happen. Mm. And this is how, you know, this man's son was baptized and he was fully receiving Sister Cedia in the Lord and fully receiving her ministry and grateful for her mm-hmm. ministry that allowed his family to sustain their faith. Thank you for sharing those stories and painting those pictures. I can admit from my American worldview, I really can take for granted that sacramental ministry will be available to me whenever I want to need it, that priests are going to be available to serve me. And that's obviously not the experience of Catholics worldwide. The people of God are hungry and they need to be served. They need to be responded to. And there are ways, the Spirit is showing us ways that that can be done. So uh, that's exciting to think about that there could be new things emerging on the other side of the Synod as we listen more and more to the stories of on the periphery, the stories that are not so center. There's so much that we've explored here today. I love all the threads that we've touched on, the, the importance of relevance and how you learn to be a good listener when you were a teenager from the church. And then that circled back to how you're engaging in the church and helping the church to live out the spirit of the synod now today. And in between, you found a passion for the reign of God and, and being a minister and a leader. Uh, of course, St. Phoebe is a guide and an example for us. And and there there's so much potential for the ways that all people of faith can respond and show up. But yet, we, I think you know just as well as I do that <laughs> life is messy. Living the gospel is messy and complicated and full of struggle and paradox and pain. And so I'd love to hear you describe how you navigate the messiness personally uh, of being a disciple of Jesus Christ and living the gospel. A commitment to prayer, Mm. a commitment to listening to learn. I think I do have a lifelong love of learning. And so I try to approach my own life and the lives of my family members and friends with a certain amount of humility. Mm. Like, okay, there are days where I'm like, I didn't quite show up as my best self today. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What do I need to learn here? And God help me 
there was a Jesuit priest, Father Brendan Bussey, actually, he's now pastor at Dolores Mission. I remember he once said, pray for the grace you need. Mm. So sometimes I'll just take a moment to be like, okay, what is the grace that I need right now? Mm. And, And just ask God for it. Right now, I have an elderly father who's in hospice care. I'm helping to manage his care. This is one of my diaconal ministries right now, bringing our family into all of this. And and it's hard. You know, it's hard when somebody you love is fading away. And so I pray for that grace. I just pray for that grace to be present to this Mm. moment in our family's life, to be present with my father and to be present to what it is that God is inviting us to do uh, each day. And then in my ministry with discerning deacons, I pray for the grace to be a bridge builder, mm. be a bridge builder between those who want the church to, to just stay the way it is. They have found so much consolation from the church. And yet those who are hungering for us to keep moving into the third millennium and respond in the new ways that are needed. And so how do we be bridge builders to just celebrate our tradition, and yet also celebrate that the Holy Spirit is always here walking with us on the path towards the future, and that and that we can hold both of those things in tension. That is part of my prayer. Amen. Come Holy Amen. Spirit. May... Come Holy Spirit. Come. <laughs> and may you be filled with all the grace you need. Yes, to listen, to be a bridge builder, to serve. And thank you so much for all your leadership, for being a model for women like me. And thank you. Thank you for coming on Messy Jesus Business. Thank you for the invitation. Love the opportunity. And God bless you in your ministry. Messy Jesus Business is produced and edited by Colin Wamskans. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.